people might mistakenly think, well, come on, I would never be stupid enough to get into a cult. Okay, fine, but I'm telling you, <laughs> it could happen to anybody. Nobody knowingly joins a cult. When you are in a cult, you don't know it. So you never know you're in a cult. You would certainly never join one. And there's probably a million different ways to get sucked in. This is a joyful rebellion. The podcast that explores that moment you realize the life and success you worked so hard to create didn't come with all the fulfillment you thought it would. I'm your host, James Walters, and I want you to be the author of your own story. Each week, I connect with people who inspire bold answers to the question, what do I do now to create a life I love? If you're ready to start answering that question for yourself, you're in the right place. So let's start a joyful rebellion. Hang on to your handlebars because today's guest is taking us on a wild adventure inside the tiny cult he escaped from after 20 years of not realizing he was ever in a cult to begin with. Peter Young is the author of the memoir, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. And we discuss what it was like to be in a tiny religious cult, how he finally realized he was in fact in a cult and how he got out. Stick around to the very end because Peter also gives us some major red flags that might signal you or someone you care about is involved with a cult because as he explains, it's easier to fall into than anyone could ever believe. Peter Young, thank you for joining us on this Joyful Rebellion. Thanks for having me. Yeah. When I saw your info, I was fascinated because this podcast, it's all about the time in people's lives when they realize that they've worked really hard to get where they are and they look around at their life and they think, ah, oh, this could be better. This could be different. Am I working really hard to achieve someone else's dreams? That's usually the conversation, but you found yourself in something far more dramatic than someone else's dream. And it all started with a dream, as I understand. You're the author of the book, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. It's a memoir and it tells a story about the situation you found yourself in. So I, I don't want to give it away. I want to let you run with it. Sure. Again, thanks for having me on. And, and it's interesting the way you started into that because, yes, this whole thing kind of started with a dream, but I wasn't living someone else's dream. I was living a nightmare is really what I was doing. I unwittingly married into a tiny but destructive religious cult when I met and married the love of my life. So this would be 1997, so a long time ago. We were married for over 20 years. And I knew that Paige had this weird, bizarre, mysterious family guru she called Uncle Robert, who was not related at all. And I remember when I met her, she was everything I had dreamed of and prayed for in a woman. She was she was wonderful in so many ways. She was, she was beautiful. She was Christian. She was athletic, et cetera. And she talked constantly when we first met about her father and this Uncle Robert. So after like two weeks, James, I, I was ready to marry her. But I thought, well, <laughs> I, I got to... Uh, I have to find out who this, you know, Uncle Robert character is. And when I met her father, you know, a little odd and weird, but harmless. And then I, a couple months later, met Uncle Robert and kind of thought the same thing, which, of course, I was, I was dead wrong. So, we, yeah, we got married. And the first few years of our marriage were wonderful. I was madly in love. And I thought I was the best husband ever, she the best wife ever. We had five children together. But over the years, slowly but surely, Uncle Robert took over every aspect of our lives, took over our marriage, the parenting, intimacy, what we believed, who was saved and who was not saved. And then eventually, of course, destroyed it all. Broke up my family and destroyed my marriage. Whoa. That that's is, all. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, yeah, that's, that's a lot. 
That's a lot. I always tell people the Reader's Digest version of my life is I played basketball in college and I was going to be the next Larry Bird and that did not happen. And then I got into coaching and I was going to be the next John Wooden and that did not happen. And then I got into sports broadcasting and I was going to be the next Bob Costas. And I had some good years, some good jobs, but obviously I was not the next Bob Costas. So I was doing the six and ten sports in little old Pocatello, Idaho. And that's where I met Paige. I was mid to late 20s. She was mid-20s. And she had finished up her master's degree at Idaho State and was working on campus. When you met her and then you guys started dating, how long was it before you got to meet Uncle Robert? It sounds like there was a really slow buildup to his influence. There was, but the signs were there early on. So what's fascinating is Pocatello is not a very big town and you could not miss Paige. Six foot one, tall, blonde, athletic, gorgeous, right? Long blonde hair. And I'd seen her around town and I was at the gym working out one day with a buddy of mine and I started to describe this woman. I called her the blonde woman and I didn't know her name yet. I hadn't met her. And he said, oh, I know exactly who that is. You know, that's, that's Paige. But just be careful. They've got this really weird family guru. So before I ever met Paige, I'd heard about the weird family guru. We met at a singles Bible study like a week or two later. That would have been late October. In fact, I know the exact day, late October 1996. Then about a month into our dating was when she showed me this bizarre letter that Uncle Robert had written, which was his interpretation of a very important dream Paige had. I had no idea what this dream was about, never even met Uncle Robert yet, because we were in Idaho. He lived in Southern California. But the letter interpreted Paige's dream in such a way that it turned it upside down completely, in my opinion, changed the entire meaning of it. In so doing, solidified Uncle Robert's position in Paige's life, that is, domineering, and convinced Paige she wasn't a Christian, wasn't saved, even though she'd been baptized a few months prior, publicly. Then Paige said, well, that must be true, so I'm not saved. So then she had Robert save her, which then kind of set the precedent because everybody in our little tiny cult eventually was convinced boy, I must be the devil. I'm not saved. And therefore, I had to have Uncle Robert save us, which is a typical feature of small cult leaders or large is that they act as a gatekeeper to God, whatever religion you're in. And that's what Uncle Robert did. So we met in late October, started dating. I got the letter. I read the letter a month later, met Uncle Robert in April at Paige's older brother's wedding. And then three months later, we were married. I guess Uncle Robert wasn't putting off any getaway vibes at that point. (laughs) It seemed harmless, like you said. What was it like the first several years? Because it seems like he gave you guys a lot of rope. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. So, you know, he was living in Southern California, just outside of Riverside. We were okay. in uh, we, one year in Colorado, but mostly in, in Idaho, small town Idaho. He was always a phone call away. I think we just started email, right? This is mid to late 90s, so we just started emailing. But looking back, I didn't realize how much Paige relied on him and how much she spoke to him. I didn't really realize that. Mm-hmm. To me, he did not have that much of an impact on our lives. So again, I, I was head over heels in love because we would see him like once a year, maybe for those first few years. And again, Weird, like really weird, <laughs> but you know, not to the point of criminal or, well, we need to get rid of this guy until a few months or a year after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So if I can, I'm going to indulge everybody in this story. Now, I grew up in northern New Jersey. I had high school classmates who were in the Twin Towers that day. They got out. I had a classmate who was widowed that day. So 9-11 was kind of poignant for me. I remember where I was and when this happened, when I found out about it, et cetera. 
Well, about a year later, Uncle Robert's in Northern Idaho. We're at Paige's parents' house, and we would have these conferences when he would come and talk. And it wasn't a meeting or a gathering or a Bible study. It was a conference because it was Uncle Robert. And he was going on and on, and I never knew this is how he believed, but he was going on and on about how President Truman was a Jew and FDR was a Jew. And he really, you know, kind of spat the word out with a lot of anger. And that 80,000 people died on 9-11. This was my entree into his raving anti-Semitism. He believed that all of recorded history was basically a battle or a struggle between Jacob and Esau. So if you know your Bible, the story of Jacob and Esau, it's in Genesis in the Bible. And Jacob becomes greater Christendom, you know, like the lost tribes of Israel. Mm. And Esau becomes Edom, which is modern Jewry. So then you take this through this kind of elaborate rendition of history to where every recession, depression, 9-11, whatever it is, usury, is a front for Jews trying to control Christians. So this is like three, three, four, yeah, three years into our marriage, four years into our marriage. And I was stunned, stunned because mm. I had no idea about the side of him. And I remember telling Paige that night, I said, honey, I don't think we should have anything to do with this guy. Do you realize this is what he believes, how dangerous this is? And I was very concerned and she listened, but I didn't follow up. I didn't press it. And, you know, if I had, would she have left me then? I don't know, maybe. But you know what? We only had two kids at the time, and I never revisited it, and I should have, and it was my fault, because it only got worse from there. Let's rewind just for a minute. How did he come into their lives to begin with? It's a fascinating story. He was born and raised in Syria, which would be, you know, kind of the cradle of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Syria was historically very Christian, but, you know, the last couple hundred years, right, it's it's very Muslim. And there's also, obviously, a lot of anti-Semitism. So he would have brought that with him. So he emigrated to America, married an American woman, and then was going to a tiny Christian seminary in Fresno, California, late 60s, early 70s, where he met Paige's parents because Paige's father was getting a seminary degree. And so the relationship started there. And again, it was very one-sided, very domineering, very cult-like. And that's where it started. So this is before Paige was even born. So Paige was born into a world where Uncle Robert was the expert on everything. So she's known no other world. Okay. So she was pretty much born into that relationship, into his status. Correct. Sounds like her parents were still on board. Yes. Jack and Kathy, Paige's parents, let's just say they were ripe. I think it's probably the best way to put it for someone like Robert Booty, which is his real name, to come in and cultivate this very unhealthy relationship. But I will also backtrack and say, this could happen to anybody. People might mistakenly think, well, come on, I would never be stupid enough to get into a cult. Okay, fine. But I'm telling you, (laughs) it could happen to anybody. Nobody knowingly joins a cult. No one ever knows they're in a cult because cults, while they come in all different shapes and sizes, are at their core about undue mind control, manipulative, coercive mind control. So when you are in a cult, you don't know it, right? You're always in something better. It's a self-actualization group or a church that's enlightened or whatever it is. So you never know you're in a cult. You would certainly never join one. And there's probably a million different ways to get sucked into it. I saw your quote that said, you never know you're in a cult until you are no longer in the cult. Right, until you you only know you were in a cult. Because think about it. The moment you would say, James, but you know, this is really weird. Hey, buddy, are, are, are you seeing how weird this is? The moment you can say that is now the moment where that undue mind control is losing its grip on you. 
If it still had its grip on you, you would never ask that question. But only when you can really step back and question it, then you could say, oh boy, that was a cult. In the years after you got married, you were having kids, you and your wife were doing the family thing. You were going to your own churches, it sounded it like. You were you're doing your own thing. Was Robert just distracted? Was he doing other things? He wasn't yet focused on you. Was he focused on someone else before he really started to tighten the grip is what it seems like. Yeah, that's interesting the way you put that was, was he distracted? Yes, he's often distracted. His distraction would have been Paige's parents, number one. He was always cultivating and working on that relationship to where they looked to him for everything. And then, of course, the same thing with Paige. I don't know those first few years what he really thought of me. I think he probably knew he didn't have much control over me because for many years I kept the secret because I went along to get along because I knew how much Paige adored and revered the man. But other than that time after hearing about his raving anti-Semitism, I was quiet. I didn't say much about it. So I went along to get along. But he lived in Southern California. We lived in Idaho and Montana, so we were far away. He would come. We would have our conferences where he would teach us. So it was hard to say like he was kind of sinking his teeth into me or sinking his claws into me. It was more a result of this guy's not going anywhere. And if I'm going to have this guy be a huge part of my life because my wife adores him, I would rather this guy be really brilliant and interesting and well-read versus a nut job, right? So maybe it's <laughs> me. Maybe yeah. I just don't get his brilliance. And so then I try to engage him and ask questions. But the problem is you're never supposed to ask questions of the cult leader. So instead of getting good responses from him, oh, okay, Peter, good question. Here's what I meant by that. Here's what I think. It was always, why are you so stupid that you don't understand me? Mm. And so then every time I would ask a question, I'd kind of get a response like that. I would be diminished in the eyes of my wife. And I could tell by the way she would react around me after having been around Uncle Robert. I knew that there was a, boy, I wish Peter would get it, kind of a vibe. That's fascinating. So you learned pretty quickly to keep your mouth shut, especially when Paige was around. Well, you would think I should have <laughs> learned quickly, but I, I can't say that I did because I kept asking questions even up to, I mean, Paige left me in January, 2017. So I can remember in spring of 2016, here's a good example. So, you know, in the Christian faith, there's tithing. You've heard of tithing sure. where we're supposed to give back 10% of what you have been blessed with, right? Like it's a way of saying, thank you, God, right? And you give it to the church or other Christian organizations or whatever it is. And over the years, we would tithe here, there, and to Uncle Robert, and then eventually became all Uncle Robert all the time. Oh. And uh, we were spent a few years being broke. I sold real estate for a living, and we moved during the recession, and just we were clobbered. So he's like, well, instead of sending me tithe money, I'll just tithe it back to you. This was his thinking. And it was, it's so bizarre. And if you're listening, you think, Peter, I don't understand it. It's, it's hard to understand. <laughs> it's not, most, not supposed to make sense. But he would say, well, I'll just tithe it back to you, which he never tithed to us. We always sent him money because he was always broke. And I'll tell you why in a minute. So we would always send him money. So then we just stopped sending money. We stopped tithing. And in his mind and in Paige's mind, no, 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 we never stopped we have been tithing and then he would tithe it back to us and he's so brilliant and he's so magnanimous and he's figured out a way to make this so it works. And I'm like, what are you talking about? No one's doing anything. And I kind of start feeling convicted like I think we should tithe because we didn't do it for like two, three years. Mm. And so then, then when I brought that up to Paige and then she immediately related to Uncle Robert, oh boy, 
But you couldn't have found a more ungrateful, rude person on the face of the earth because I did not recognize how benevolent Uncle Robert was being by tithing the money back to us. Tithing the money we never sent. Wow. That's what he thought. Yeah. So it sounds like he had created a a small cult between your family, Paige's parents. But did he have people elsewhere that he had this control over? Like where he was in California, did he find a group of people separate from you guys? Very few. And that's a common question. You know, what about the Smiths, the Jones, the Andersons, whatever? And we were a very small cult. It would have been about, let's say, maybe a dozen people at the most. But there was a brother, Michael, who, again, I always describe it as thinking Batman and Robin. You know, Uncle Robert was Batman and Robin, you know, the sidekick would have been brother Michael. Single guy, have no idea what he did for a living, but lived in Southern California near Uncle Robert. And then when Uncle Robert would drive around for his ministry, Michael was always there because apparently Michael had nothing else to do. So he was always there at the conferences. There was another guy, George Bookman, who was part of this for a while. He lived in northern Idaho near Paige's parents. He got out. He and I are good friends, and we both learned from this. But other than that, there there weren't that many. I don't even know where to start. Number one, I'm just fascinated of what was Robert's endgame? What was his goal? Did he just want control over some people? It doesn't sound like it was a financial goal. Yeah, another way to put it would be, well, what was he getting out of it? Why did he do this? It was a small group, but the way I would describe it is he had an enormous amount of control over a family. So Paige, her older brother, and her parents, and then my my family, none of the extended young families. So my parents, my brothers, my sister-in-laws, none of them were a part of this, none of it at all. They kind of knew about this Uncle Robert guy, but that's it. So it was a small group, but they were devoted to him, right? So here he has these people who are devoted to him, who speak highly of him, who do whatever he says, right? It's intoxicating. All cult leaders, again, they can come in different shapes and sizes, but they all have similar characteristics. They're very narcissistic. They have a grandiose sense of self. So right there, there's about all you really need to cover, this grandiose sense of self and this narcissism, which is really present in in every cult leader. They feed off of that devotion and that control. There was a little bit of a financial element because we all eventually tithed to him. We all sent our money to him. He certainly wasn't getting rich. But I should point out that one of the other caveats or very interesting things about his theology, his ideology, whichever one you want to call it here, was that he taught that casinos are the true churches in America. And so that the churches that you and I would go to on a Sunday are a complete waste of time. But anybody can go into a casino, regardless of your race, your religion, your bank account size, success in life, and be blessed by the Lord. This is his thinking. And I remember thinking like, well, okay, but when I go into a casino, I see people worshiping money, not God. And yet, that's what he believes. And of course, Paige's parents believed it. Paige believed it. So he, when he would travel around the country, so he would, again, grandiose sense of self. He would go to D.C. and lobby for whatever it was, which I don't know what he was lobbying. He would meet with congressmen and senators and supposedly had meetings with Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Fed. He'd call him Papa Green. And on his way in his little beat-up car that he would drive around the country, he would stop at all the Indian casinos around the country. He would gamble for his gas money. And he would tell these stories about how he's blessed. And it would be like this kind of hushed reverence as he would tell these stories and, and Paige and her parents would soak it in. And I would roll my eyes like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, do you believe this? Casinos are big, beautiful buildings for a reason. The house always wins. Yeah. So when we would have our conferences in Northern Idaho, there still to this day, there's a casino on the Indian Reservation, the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, about an hour and a half away. 
So we would have these conferences during the day. We would sit in the living room and listen and talk for hours. And then at night, all the adults knew that I didn't, I didn't want to go. I didn't really like gambling. If you want to go out with your buddies and, and play 21 or whatever, fine, go ahead. But to think that you're going to make a living at it, come on. So I would stay back and watch the kids. And they would go. But they wouldn't say they're going to the casino. They said they were going to the office. So the casino was Uncle Robert's office. Office. Then a year or two after, Pages left me, and I had been brainwashed for about two and a half years. We can get into that in a bit. But when I finally got rescued and got out of it, and I was reconnecting with friends that I hadn't talked to in years, a friend of mine from college, I was describing all this. She's like, Peter, wait a minute. You guys all sent him money every month, and he gambled all the time. And I remember thinking, hmm, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound good, does it? Wow. Yeah. One of the other things I really want to talk about, because... We're going from the time where you thought he was kind of harmless, he was arm's length, then he started creeping into your life. It also sounds like he started really separating you from anyone who could be a sounding board. And that seems like something that would be pretty common in any cult situation. You don't realize you haven't talked to your good friend or your advisor. And I know I read in your book that you had left just about every church you guys had found and attended, I guess maybe Robert compelled you to do that. If someone out there is listening right now and is in a cult and has no idea, what inventory could they take of the people in their lives or the things that they do or the things that maybe they think is normal to them? It's not normal to most people. Anybody, let's say, who, who is under the undue mind control of a cult leader or cult guru will have answers. They'll have ready-made answers, as I did for a while. But cults maintain control of their members through a number of means, but mainly paranoia, isolation, and secrecy. So the paranoia well, with Uncle Robert was, well, you know, you can't say Jew and Gentile on a cell phone because the Jews are all listening. And Uncle Robert knows the true story and the true danger about the Jews, so his life's in danger. Therefore, our lives are in danger. So we have to protect him, protect ourselves, and circle the wagon. Don't say certain words on your cell phone, shred your trash, etc. Right? So now we're paranoid. And isolation. We lived in Idaho, and we would go to church and then leave, and then church then leave. And it wasn't so much Uncle Robert saying, you need to leave, as in he would subtly be able to tell Paige, well, gee, the pastor said this. Does that sound right? Is that what I've told you? Does that match what I told you? And of course, Paige would say, no, and then we would leave. To the point where we were no longer going to any kind of church, and so we really had no fellowship. So we didn't really have people around us, mm. no one to say, hey, Peter, you know, let's go for a walk. I've heard you say some really weird things about this guy. Why don't you tell me more, right? Like we had nobody in our lives to say, hey, this doesn't sound good. Okay, so now we're isolated. And then the secrecy around it would be, you know, Peter, you can't tell our friends about this Jewish conspiracy or about casinos because they just won't get it. So don't mm -hmm. throw your pearls before the swine, right? That's you know, a biblical reference. They just wouldn't understand Uncle Robert. And oh, by the way, not only would they not understand, that they would try and intervene. And that's a threat to Uncle Robert. And that could never be tolerated. So now mm -hmm. we're totally isolated and paranoid. And everything's quiet. Everything's secret. While this is all happening... I'm a sports broadcaster. I'm on TV. I'm working for ESPN. I'm traveling around the country, and nobody had any idea. Our neighbors down the street had no idea. Some small cults, maybe even large ones, but certainly small ones, 
can hide right in plain sight. Yeah, because I know my experience with seeing cults is the one in Texas, you know, Waco, where the feds came in, or this was, I think it was before my time. I don't know, maybe, but the Jim Jones drinking the Kool-Aid, that's where it came from, where a lot of people died in that situation. So a lot of the public is used to seeing one cult leader with many, many followers, and it's super dysfunctional. What you're describing, like you said, hiding in plain sight, much smaller group, hyper dysfunctional, but no one would know. Right. And I remember, I'm old enough, I'm 55, so I remember Jim Jones in Jonestown. The interesting thing, it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was a different drink, but everybody knows it as Kool-Aid now. Nearly 800 people died by mass suicide. And then the Branch Davidians with David Koresh in the mid-90s, Heaven's Gate, I think they were out of San Diego. Then the Nexium cult where that guy, Keith Raniere, he's in jail. So there's a lot of high-profile cults that really kind of exploded on the consciousness of American culture and American society. So it's understandable that people would think, well, that's a cult. But there's been a lot of research, and I've tried to read as much as I can. And I remember when I first came out of it, I didn't want to think it was a cult. I thought, yeah, you know, it's really bad. It was bizarre. What Uncle Robert did and said was, was wrong, was unbiblical, was wicked. But come on, it wasn't a cult. And then mm-hmm. I read a book on cults, and I ended up highlighting like half the book. My jaw hit the floor, oh. and it was like, oh. it was a cult. Yeah. Like, I couldn't avoid yeah. it. So that's why I like to really kind of stress and drive home the point, they come in all shapes and sizes. We did not live in a commune. There was no violence or sexual abuse. We didn't shave our heads, wear robes, have chants, and we didn't commit suicide. But we figuratively drank the Kool-Aid. And the Mm. Kool-Aid is the undue manipulative mind control of a leader over his followers. So when you think about it from that perspective, it's pretty easy to hide. Right? But you were living double life there for a while. You were doing the sports casting. You were out there in the public eye. But when you weren't, you were really disconnected from most of the people who counted in your life. Now, where did your family factor into this? Like your parents, because you're one of five, right? Yeah. So I was born and raised in northern New Jersey into a Christian home. Two wonderful parents who are still alive, 89 and 87. By all accounts, a wonderful upbringing, upper middle class, went to college, graduated. My four older brothers, you know, lawyers, bankers, actuaries, everybody's doing fine. We're not perfect, but I mean, you know, that's certainly no indication of any kind of cult. And uh, so Uncle Robert would have spoken at my wedding. That's about the only time any of my family ever met him. Really weird, really bizarre. I couldn't tell you a word of what he said. (laughs) Because <laughs> he was often very hard to follow. And that's it. So then over the years, as he started to take control and, and clearly shape my thinking and my communication style, I'm sure my family got a little concerned. But in terms of what I just shared with you, they didn't know anything. Until Paige left me, she started telling the kids, I'm the devil. My kids are believing her. My life has totally been destroyed. And I didn't tell my family for four months. When I finally did, they were stunned. They had no idea. So then I started to share with them the anti-Semitism, the casinos or churches, on and on and on. And they had no idea. Mm. No idea. It sounds like there wasn't an opportunity to bring them in on what was going on with you without risking something with your immediate family, with your kids, with your marriage, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Because here's another thing to keep in mind. Cults will often, through isolation, shun family members. So actually, let me even, let me peel the onion back another layer. One of the goals of the cult leader is to blur the lines of the nuclear family. 
So instead of the child honoring, revering, let's say, and obeying the parents, and then the parents, you know, honoring, revering the grandparents, et cetera, there's these layers. Mm-hmm. Well, in the cult, everybody is reduced to the same level of that of a child. I don't care if you're 88 or 18, you're all children of the cult leader. And so the cult mm-hmm. leader is dad, right? Whatever they even want to give it to that person. And everybody then competes to be most favored child status of the cult leader. So over the years, my former father-in-law, who's now in his late 70s, about the same age as Uncle Robert, Robert Booty, would call him dad. So my mother-in-law started to call him dad because they felt like he was their father in the Lord. And then we would call him Uncle Robert, and my kids would call him Grandpa Bob, on and Mm -hmm. on and on. To where the goal eventually was that he would become the father of my five children and I would just be a friend. And that was the goal. I was called a sperm donor in a bloodline and I would no longer be the true father of my five children. Uncle Robert would be. Because my former father-in-law on multiple occasions, I heard him say this, would say to Paige, your true father was Uncle Robert, not me. And when I first heard it, you know, Paige said, no, dad, like cut it out. You were. Maybe years later, she would have agreed. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not talking physically. I'm talking like in a, in a figurative sense. Sure. But the role of the cult leader would be to blur or destroy the nuclear family. Because of that, my former father-in-law doesn't really see himself as a good father. The only good father on the, on the face of the earth is Uncle Robert. He was horrible. He was a cockroach, right? He was a cockroach of a father and worthless. And he had five kids as well, Paige being one of them. Mm. Well, th- the three younger children didn't agree with Uncle Robert, so they got shunned, vilified, kicked to the curb 23 years ago. You know, my kids have cousins they've still never met because they did not adhere to Uncle Robert. So all of the Clawson families, that would be my in-laws, were split down the middle. You either obeyed Uncle Robert or you were a non-entity, non-person. Whoa. And so I saw that and I thought, well, I'm not going to let that happen to my family. Yeah. So I largely just kept it quiet because I didn't want the same thing to happen with my family. Mm. You said there was a period of two and a half years where you were really bought into it. Yep. What you described as brainwashed. How did you go from Uncle Robert's kind of weird to realizing you had to keep things hush hush and keep a lid on everything? And you said you were keeping quiet to keep the peace. When did the line blur from keeping the peace to buying into it? It would have been about a 14, 15 year stretch of time. I wish I knew exactly when Uncle Robert gave his little, yeah, you know, the Jews are trying to control the world talk, but I'm pretty sure it was fall of 2001 because I think it was it was not right after 2009-11, but maybe like a year later. To then, we had one of our conferences, I was finally worn out and worn down. I knew my wife doubted my faith. I knew she doubted whether or not I was a Christian and therefore I'm, I assumed Uncle Robert did as well. And I was just exhausted of trying to fight it, of trying to constantly ask questions like, really? Casinos are the churches? Come on. So I'm having this cognitive dissonance. You called it living a kind of a dual life. I would call it cognitive dissonance to where, on the one hand, I knew what this guy was sharing was absolute nonsense. On the other hand, my wife, whom I loved and adored, and my in-laws believed his every word. Mm. And Uncle Robert was shared in such a way, you're like, maybe he's right. Maybe it's me. Maybe I've missed something. So I've got this internal turmoil going on inside my head, this little battle, if you will, for so long. It's kind of like a Chinese torture test. I just got worn out. I got worn Mm. out, worn down. I was exhausted. And I allowed myself in a moment of weakness to think, okay, Paige, you're right. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian. Bingo. There we go. He finally admitted it. So now we have Uncle Robert save him. And, And the moment that happened, I was like, I don't think I really believe this. Like, this is kind of weird. 
But that started it. That started the two, two and a half years. And then as my life spiraled out of control from there to where really I was hoping that this would bring my marriage back to where it once was, it was really, you know, the kind of the beginning of the end. I drew more and more close to Uncle Robert because at that point, then I saw him as the solution to my problems rather than he is the problem. Yeah, and that's yeah. another tactic of cult leaders. They make you an emotional and mental wreck, and then they prescribe the cure. Mm-hmm. You don't recognize that they cause you to become a wreck, but you see that they provided the cure. So now it's like a self-perpetuating cycle, right? Right. You give yeah. up more control to this person whom you think just saved you. That would be hard to see that coming, especially over a 14-year slow burn like that. When you did get into that period of time, you had a family to provide for. Did that start to affect your day-to-day? Or were you able to compartmentalize work, then come home and fulfill your other role as husband and do all the things that would make Uncle Robert happy? I would say largely I was able to compartmentalize things. At that point, my broadcasting career kind of died on the vine, living in Montana. I wasn't living in Denver, LA, or Phoenix, so my work had really dwindled, so now I'm mostly selling real estate. But I could, for the most part, show up and go to work and do whatever I needed to do and kind of put on that face, right, the public, and do what was required. Where it really started to affect me to the point where I was kind of a wreck was after she left. Because when she left, I was very much emasculated. I had gotten to the point where everything Paige said, everything Uncle Robert said was correct, and I was wrong. Everything was my fault. I deferred to them, and I was a shell of a man. I was a shell of myself. There is the notion in Christian thought and Christian faith that we are victorious, right? Like, as a Christian, we have victory over sin, victory over death, etc. We're victorious, right? We're winners. Yay, we're real. Well, I was anything but victorious under Uncle Robert. I was anything but confident. The worst moments in my light of doubt and fear were when I was in the most constant communication with him, and that's not by coincidence. So then when she left me, I was a wreck. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Uh, I was never suicidal. I lost 30 pounds. I went on one to two hours of sleep a night for months. I mean, I was miserable. Wow. That affected my life. Yeah, at that point. When that separation happened and Paige decided she wanted to leave and you went through all of the emotional stuff, was Robert still trying to have a hold over you? When did you realize you needed to cut the cord from Robert completely? Sure. And how did that go? Yeah. To condense it and then I'll build from there. I, I always tell people, listen, you know, I was brainwashed about two and a half, three years, and it took me about a year, a year to fully recovering it back on my feet. Now, I would encourage everybody to, to buy my book, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, and read because this period that I'm talking about, which happened in 2017, is absolutely stunning, jaw-dropping, fascinating case study of evil manipulation and psychological warfare. I look back at it and I just shake my head and say, how did I allow this to happen? But the stuff that he was saying to me and writing to me is absolutely wicked and bizarre. But again, at the moment, Paige has left me. I'm thinking the only person I could talk to is him. So I'm only talking to him. No one else in my life knew what was going on. The kids didn't even know, our five kids. The oldest ones probably had an idea that was something was going on. Paige left me, took the three youngest kids up to Idaho. The two oldest who were high school and college age stayed with me. So I'm having these crazy conversations with with Uncle Robert, who is still convinced now, because I've been trying to be saved by him, I think, three times. I'm still not a Christian. I've gone through this 
exercise with him three different times, which again was all fraudulent, all wicked, all evil, him trying to be a gatekeeper to God, unbiblical, unchristian, you name it. We're still going through this process. Now it's a month in, now it's two months in, now three months in, and I'm kind of getting the vibe like, Paige is not coming back anytime soon. I was holding mm-hmm. out hope that she would change her mind, and from here on out, our marriage like the phoenix would rise, and what a great example we could show of we stuck together. That obviously didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Because Paige left, which is totally unbiblical, now here's Uncle Robert, this guy apparently knows the Bible better than anybody, he's always going to support her over me. So now he's got to come up with an excuse. Well, how can I support what Paige did? Because I was faithful. I never slept around. I never wanted an affair. None of that ever happened. I was never abusive. I never got physically violent. I hardly ever shouted at the woman. Nothing. So then I told the children early on, I'm sorry. I took all the blame. I love you. And I still love your mom. Well, when Paige found out that's what I told the younger children, she said, well, why did you tell them that? I said, because it's true. She said, no, you never loved me. You only thought you did. Therefore, you lied to the kids because if daddy still loves mommy, why did mommy leave daddy, right? And Paige wasn't about to be the one to blame for this. So then she started to go on this kick about how I was a sperm donor and a bloodline. And I should get away from the children and just be their friend because you're not a father, Peter, and you know it. You're nowhere near the truth, father. You're just a dad, barely. Be a friend. So then they just went on this biological determinism and all this, Uncle Robert and Paige did. And that was three, four months after she left. That I knew was wrong. And that really started the ball rolling. Yeah, that probably got you fired up when you realized how much unreality your kids were being exposed to at that point. I'll tell you why it was so sinister. So remember I discussed earlier about the cult leader trying to blur the lines of the nuclear family to where the nuclear family is really secondary if it even exists, right? The family is the leader and everybody who follows him. So Uncle Robert, Robert Booty, has two sons of his own. And those sons are now middle-aged and they had daughters. They had no sons of their own. So Uncle Robert had no direct male heir. He had sons, but no grandsons. So no one to carry on his precious bloodline because of course, Only Uncle Robert knows the true gospel and knows truly what's going on in the world with geopolitical events, etc. So somehow we have to protect him and his bloodline and his family tree. So after we had had five kids, Paige wanted to be a surrogate and provide Uncle Robert with a male grandson through Robert's oldest son, who I had met once, who was married. They had daughters. Neither one of us had ever met his wife. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, are you kidding me? And and we had talked about having a sixth child. And she's like, nope. And I will not even think about having that until I get to at least offer this to Uncle Robert's oldest son. I, of course, was very much against it. This is like two years before she left me. And I was hmm. repulsed and sickened by the idea of her being pregnant with Uncle Robert's grandson, which you know yeah. she would do in vitro. And oh, I remember man. thinking to myself and asking her, well, what happens if you have a girl? Would you try again? She's like, yep. As many times as I need to. So here it was, his bloodline, his DNA is precious, needs to be preserved at all costs. Two years later, my bloodline is a biological prison. And Mm. I'm thinking, what changed over two years? It was obvious at that point, right? I mean, it was obvious this is wrong. Yeah, that, that took a dark turn. When you realized something had to change, who did you go to? Who did you lean on? How did you get yourself out of it? And the bigger question is, as you were going through that, 
how did you even calibrate what was reality anymore? Mm. Like, how did you know, okay, I, I can trust my instincts here or I can trust that person's word there? How did you make sense of what was real? I tell people there are three things that really saved me, faith, family, and friends. So first and foremost, my faith, because even though for about a year, let's say, it was obvious that Paige, Robert, and Paige's parents thought I was a liar, a fraud, a devil, and not saved. And I was starting to believe them, as crazy as it sounds. But you know what? After she left me, and I would have these dark moments where I couldn't sleep, guess what I would do? I'd read the Bible and I would pray. And I knew the Lord heard me. I knew the Lord loved me. So back in the recesses of my mind, I knew I was saved. And yet here I've got this, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the the, the two wolves, right? You know, the angry, angry wolf and the, and the good wolf or whatever that that phrase is or that saying is, depends on which one you feed. And then there's this crazy Uncle Robert wolf telling me, no, that you're a devil, you're a fraud, you're not saved. But eventually I realized that, you know, no, he's wrong. This is wicked. And it was truly the Lord opening my eyes and ears to see all this. If he doesn't open my eyes and ears, I'll never see it. And I believe he did that through my faith and friends. Because what I would do is I would get these emails from Robert and Paige. They were just awful, off the charts awful. And they would send me into a tailspin when I would get them, you know, anxiety, fear. And yeah. I would send them to, you know, like a brother, my attorneys and friends. And I'd be like, have you read it? Should I read it? And I, and I can't imagine what was going through these people's minds because it was so bizarre. Every now and then they'd be like, um, you might want to wait before you read this email, you know, because they were so bad. So, of course, they saw it wow. right away. They saw how crazy it was. They were very kind, very patient, and they slowly but surely helped me see. Because when I first told them, I said, listen, here's what happened. Please don't say anything negative about Paige and Robert. Just support me. And mm -hmm. as hard as it was for my friends and family to do that, they did for about a month or two. And then one brother was like, I'm sorry, I can't do this any longer, you know? And he just unloaded on Paige. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, how could you speak negatively about Paige and Uncle Robert without endangering your eternal soul? Literally, that's where I was at. Whoa, whoa, okay. So it was drip by drip. It was no one light bulb moment like Saul on the road to Damascus. It was gradual. Did you compartmentalize your faith? And what I mean by that is, how did you lean on the same faith that was basically weaponized against you by Uncle Robert? You realized that Uncle Robert was the problem, not the faith. So you stuck with the faith. How did you go about not mixing those things up? Because it sounds like with the cult situation, a lot of things get mixed up. Like you said, work religion into how the nuclear family is structured and everything serves the cult leader's purpose. But how were you able to stick with your faith after going through it? I love the way you phrased that uh, weaponizing faith, because that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what Robert did. And then through Paige and her parents, they clearly weaponized his theology against me. Here's how I would phrase it as well. If you miss hit a golf ball by, you know, like an eighth of an inch off the tee, a hundred yards down the fairway, it's way off to the left or way off to the right. It's nowhere near the pin where you were aiming. Uncle Robert would read from the Bible, right? So he would, in essence, tee up the right golf ball to continue the analogy. But he had a unique and perverse way to take each and every verse and give it his spin so that 5, 10, 15 years down the road, you're way away from the gospel, way away. Mm -hmm. Thus, that's why you don't want to hear from other preachers because they would tell you the truth and counteract what Uncle Robert was saying. So after all of those years, I've got this weaponized, skewed theology in my head. But here's the thing. Salvation is a free gift from God. I can't earn it. If we could earn it, we wouldn't need God, right? It was like kind of the whole point of it. We can't earn it. It's a gift. 
And God's more powerful than a co-leader, than a guru, than Robert Booty. So it was the Lord being able to open my eyes and ears. It started with him, with his ability to say, Peter, um, you know, you need to see the truth here. Hmm. And that's where it started. That's about the best way I can describe it. So now you have this little spark that's finally, you know, getting fanned into a flame after nearly getting extinguished for a couple of years there. And that just becomes obvious. I got all these other people that you share a common faith with that you've known for 30, 40, 50 years, right before you ever met Pedro or Uncle Robert. And they're all saying the same thing. And you finally realize, wow, I was misled. I had been led astray. Yeah. And then leaning on your faith, your family, your friends, they helped you out of that. Now, you've got a book, and we talked about it a little bit called Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. You wrote that as a memoir. What was it that led you to feel like, I need to put this down on paper? Because I remember in the prologue that someone suggested you write it as a novel, like fictionalize it. And you said, no, no one would believe this. They'd laugh at it. So you wrote it as a memoir. Yeah. How it started out was, I've written one book already. So I wrote, well, I've written two now. And the first book was a novel called The Blue Team by Faith and Basketball. And I was working on the sequel when my lawyers, because, you know, the five kids and the divorce you know, I'm still dealing with my attorneys, and they're great. They said, you know, Peter, just give us a timeline of your, the marriage, when you were married, when the kids are born, et cetera. Well, a one-page synopsis became five, became 10, and then during COVID, I just couldn't write fast enough. It was very cathartic, very therapeutic, and so I wrote the whole story. Because so much of what happened, I needed to kind of work through it, so it was my mm-hmm. way of processing the destruction of my marriage, the destruction of my family, the implosion of a good half of my life. And it felt great to write it. People say, wow, how brave of you to put it on paper. Thank you, but I don't consider it brave. It was unbelievably helpful. I could not move my fingers on the keyboard fast enough to, to get it out there during COVID. And then it was done. I sat on it for about two years. And I thought, you know, the kids have heard so much from one side. Peter's mm-hmm. the devil, Satan, sorcerer, liar, abuser, coward, tyrant, bully, whatever. They've heard all that and more. I thought I, they need to know the truth. So I not only published it for them, but also for others as a cautionary tale that A, this could happen to anybody, and B, small religious cults are real. They're out there and you need to be vigilant and be careful. What a story. What a story you have and what courage it must have taken for you to pull yourself out and get yourself back where you want to be. I know that's going to be a process for a really long time, but you've got a unique perspective that so many people don't have. And now you've written this book. So this book is a gift for people who might either be or know someone in this situation, because I would suspect there are quite a few people in this situation. Two things. Number one would be when you go through something really difficult, you have the choice of using that for good or not doing anything with it. What I went through was not fun. What I went through, when you read the book, you realize it was really bad. It was awful. But I could just put it behind me and never revisit it, or I could use that pain and channel it to try to help others. That's what I've chosen to do. And that just feels right. Again, that doesn't feel courageous to me. That just feels like, what else am I going to do, right? I might as well put it to use. Then number two, in terms of people, let's say, not falling into a cult, or if they know somebody who is in a cult, I'll share with you what I would consider are the biggest red flags. Doesn't mean you're in a cult or someone you know is in a cult, but these are huge red flags. The first and foremost would be someone you know and love has broken off all historical contact. 
So they don't go to church anymore, Bible study, bowling league, book club, Friday night beers, whatever it is. They've kind of pulled back. They don't email. They don't call. They don't show up. You don't see from them. It's a red flag. Then number two, they've got a certain new person in their life. There's all kind of praise for this person. You're not allowed to ask any questions. Could be a new pastor or it's some self-actualization business group, whatever it is, right? And this new person is kind of like taken over your friend's life and everything that they say, what they write is influenced by this one person and you're not allowed to question that one person. Those are huge red flags. So I encourage people, you have to stay in communication because really the most effective tool the cult has is the isolation and secrecy. I mean, the paranoia helps us really the isolation because if they can get you, James, by yourself, they can work on you and beat you down because you have no one to say, wait a minute, does this sound crazy to you? Because if they've isolated you, everyone else could say, no, James, you need to focus more and, you know, have faith or whatever. But if you and I go together and you're like, oh, my God, Peter, this seems weird. I'd be like, yeah, it is. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so that's why isolation yeah. can be so dangerous. That's great advice. Peter, I really appreciate you sharing your story and giving us this gift of helping everyone who's listening here. If they do know someone where those red flags fit, reach out to them. Don't let them go it alone. And take the first step because if someone truly is under undue mind controls, headed into a cult, they don't know it. To them, there is no problem. They will probably not reach out to you. You have to take the first step. That's great advice. Where is the best place for people to connect with you if they want to get your books? You've got two books. You've got another one coming out next year, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So I don't have a title for the sequel yet, but the sequel to The Blue Team is coming out in 2024. The Blue Team is the novel about faith and basketball. Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tigers, the memoir. They're both available on Amazon. You can also go to my website, authorpeteryoung.com. I have links to other podcasts. I've got videos. You can also then go to there and get straight to my books. And I do a lot of book reviews on YouTube, which is some fun that I love to do. So I've got, I think, like seven or 80 of them. And you can find those as well. I'll have to check some of those out. That sounds like a, a good time. I'm always interested in reading a new book or getting a new book suggestion. So thank you for that. Yeah, you bet. Peter, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been fascinating. James, thanks very much. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for joining me today and be sure to come back next week. Oh, and can I ask a favor? I love connecting with people who have either led their own joyful rebellion or professionals who help others through that journey. So if you know someone like that, there's a big yellow button on the homepage at ajoyfulrebellion.com. I'd really appreciate you reaching out with a suggestion or introduction. Thanks again, and I'll see you back here next week. <laughs>